seen time to, to be in your presence and, Lord, to, um, to gather together as believers and to call upon you through song and through worship and to glorify you. And so, Father, we, we thank you and we, we love you and we praise you because you are an amazing God that is always in the midst of us. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that as we dig in the word, your word, Lord, that we would understand that our focus should always be, in the midst of trials, eternity, and our riches in you. So, Father, speak to us, Lord, loud and clear today, Father, and I, I decrease that you would increase. I empty myself of myself, so fill me with yourself. That everything that I say and do, every thought that enters my mind would be of you and not of me. We praise in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. 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 James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12 is our text today. James 1, 9 through 12. If you're there, say amen. The outline is also on our church app, James 1, 9 through 12. Well, last Sunday, the focus of the text, verses 5 through 8 of chapter 1, was on our proper response to our trials. Now, remember, our response is vital. Say vital. Our response is vital in trials. And the the proper response is to pray. We learned that last week, to pray. Say to pray. And I gave you three points. You don't have to write them down, but pray in humility. We need to humble ourselves and also admit that we need wisdom. And we need to live our Christian lives with a sense of need, coming in total dependence and total reliance upon God. The second point was pray for wisdom. Don't just pray for humility, but also pray for wisdom, and we are to ask God for wisdom, right? Because He's the source of wisdom, and all wisdom centers on Him. And the awesome thing about asking Him for wisdom is that He gives it to us, what? Generously. Say generously. There's no limit to His wisdom. And then, when we ask for wisdom, He gives wisdom to us without what? Finding fault. Without reproach, the Bible says. Now, when we ask for wisdom, he says it will be given to us, right? But that's based, listen now, that's based on a condition. And that was the third point last week was pray with confidence. Pray with confidence. In verse, look at verse 6a with me of James 1. But when he asks, he must believe, say believe, and not doubt. So faith, believe, trust in his perfect will for us in the midst of our trials that we would not doubt him. But believe in him, amen, believe him, because we know that prayers prayed in doubt will not be answered. James then describes a doubt, look at verse 8 with me, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does, in all, all he does, all he does. So, so he or she is a walking civil war, faith and um, disbelief are having a civil war, it's a continual battle of trusting God one minute and doubting God the next. So, so we need to pray with confidence, not doubting, James says, right? Okay, not doubting, but pray believing, say believing, that, that God will answer us in his way, okay, in his will, and in his time. Not, not my will, but his will, in his time, which brings us to today's text. The title of my message today is, Keep Eternity in Sight. Everyone say that. Now, in our text, James is still talking about trials. He hasn't changed the subject. And he's applying trials to two groups of Christians, the poor and the rich Christians. And perhaps there was a a problem of social status uh, 
Perhaps a problem of class distinction with these believers. Well, there should be none of that in the church. Can I get an amen? And I'm totally positive there will be none of that in heaven, which reminds me of a story. A general once sat at the table in a royal court seated beside the court chaplain. In the course of the meal, the general turned to the chaplain and to make conversation asked, Chaplain, in, in this moment together here, could you tell me something about heaven? And the court chaplain looked at him and carefully said, Well, yes, I could. The first thing I would tell you, general, is that in heaven you will not be a general. Now, now if you have already read <clears throat> all of James, you'll discover that about four to five times he addresses the issue about the rich and the poor getting along. So here he's making a point uh, that whether rich or poor, get this now, whether rich or poor, trials put us on the same level. In other words, trials knows no social class. Trials level us. Now remember, trials are universal. Trials happen to everybody. And what James is saying is that it's not our material resources or lack of material resources that get us through the trials of life. Rather, it's our spiritual resources that get us through the trials of life. And here in the text, he tells, he's telling both the rich and the poor that, that trials, if seen from an eternal perspective, can benefit them. And he's urging them to keep eternity in sight. So as believers, no matter what our financial status is, we are all on level ground when it comes to trials. Therefore, we need to respond to our trials with eternity in sight adopting God's view as we face them. I want to share three things with you from the text. If you're ready, say yes. Number one is rags. Rags. Write that down. Then I want you to fill in the sub-point is the position. The position. Then look at verse 9a, the first part of verse 9 with me. James writes, the brother. I want to stop there. Someone say brother. Come on, say it loud. Say brother. Okay. So, so I want to remind you, friends, that James is talking to believers. He's talking to Christians. And we need to keep this text in its proper context. And, and this text is directly tied uh, to the opening verses of the chapter where it says, James a servant, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered, he writes, right, among the nations. He says, greetings. And he says, consider it or count it Pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of any kind. So he's writing to Jewish Christians who have been scattered abroad, facing times of testing, facing, facing excuse me, diverse trials. So let's read on. He says, brother, in humble circumstances. The King James says of low degree. And here James, what he does, he reveals the position of this believer. It's a believer without possessions. It's a, it's a believer who is undistinguished, uh, low on the totem pole in society who lives in humble circumstances. Now, now, th now, their humility or their low, humble circumstances was actually to their advantage because what it did was it allowed them to maintain their focus on God, continuing to depend completely on God himself. So that was a good thing that they were in humble circumstances. Say, say the position. Notice the next point, the perspective. Write that down, the perspective, and look at verse 9b with me. So, ought to take pride. That's, now, that's legitimate pride. That's the good pride, not the bad pride. 
but take pride. It might be also rendered as glory. Say glory. The King James renders it as rejoice. Say rejoice. So, so with that being said, the, the verb calls for a continual practicing or practice of rejoicing. It's a command. It's, it's a mandate by God that the believer with very little is to take pride, right? Glory. Or rejoice in what? Well, in what? Well, let's read the rest of the verse. In his high what? Position. Well, what's his high position? It's his spiritual wealth in Jesus. Because he belongs to Jesus. And what James is saying, James is saying to take a a look at your position differently. And look at it from an eternal perspective. And that is to take our eyes off what we don't have and place our eyes on the life that we have in Jesus. In other words, take pride in, glory in, rejoice in your position, not possessions. In other words, take pride in, glory in, rejoice in eternal things, not temporary things. Don't look at your standing in this world. Look at your standing before God. Because, friends, in God's eyes, you have been given a high position. You have been seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. Well, Ephesians, right, write this down, 2.6 says that. It says, in God, Paul writes, in God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Good place to say amen. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. The real issue is who we are in Christ Jesus, not what we have. And that's what James is driving at. Now, the world may look at you and assume that somehow you've missed it, that you have failed to acquire success in this life, that you have no power, you have no influence, that you have no uh, material wealth. But what they fail to see is before God, say before God, you have the riches of heaven. Isn't that awesome? So, So what does this have to do with our trials. I'm glad you asked. Trials remind us that we are rich in Jesus. Therefore, we can lose nothing. And you see, we have all that we need to sustain us, secure us, strengthen us, to protect us and encourage us through the trial. Now, I want you to write this down. This is a powerful passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And, and listen to what Peter writes Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Say new birth. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this is what he says in the remainder of these verses of 1 Peter 1. And into an inheritance, say inheritance, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept. They kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded, say shielded, by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And the verse 6 of 1 Peter says this, chapter 1 says, in this you greatly rejoice. In this, in this. In what? That you have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you, shielded by God. You rejoice in that. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You see, friends, in the midst of our trials, we can take pride, glory, 
and rejoice in these awesome truths. Now, I want to say something. We're not lifting ourselves up, okay? We're not doing that. We're not lifting ourselves up or bringing glory to ourselves. That's not what James is saying. Rather, friends, we boast our glory in our position in Christ. Therefore, we boast in glory in the Lord. Write this down, 1 Corinthians 1.31. Some of you might know this by heart. Therefore, Paul writes, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So follow me here. So in your trials, you can take pride, glory, rejoice in the fact that as a believer, you may be hungry, but you have the bread of life. You may be thirsty, but you have the living water. You may be poor, but you have eternal riches. You may be homeless, but you have a home in heaven. You may be rejected by others in this world, but you're eternally received by God. The bottom line is this spiritual wealth far, out, far outweighs material wealth. So what's, because there's a lesson here, right? What's the lesson here? Here we go. We can have legitimate pride in our eternal possessions. We can have legitimate pride in our eternal possessions. Okay, listen, by keeping eternity in sight, by operating on an eternal perspective, we don't joy, we don't joy, listen now, in our wealth on earth, but in our riches in heaven. Now get this. Our high position transcends finances, transcends bank accounts, and personal wealth. So take, listen now, pride, glory, rejoice in that. Amen? Now, you may not have much as a believer here, speaking of wealth, but man, in heaven, you're rich. And that's what James is driving at. Say rags. Number two is riches. Write that down. Riches. First sub-point is the obstacle. The obstacle. Write that down. I want you to look at verse 10a. But the one who is rich. Now, James hasn't shifted to a different audience here. He's still talking to believers. And these believers here, he's talking to in the text here, they're rich, wealthy believers. Now, and I want to say this, okay? There's nothing wrong with being a wealthy believer. Okay? I want to make sure we're clear on that. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy. David and Solomon were wealthy. Okay? It isn't impossible for a wealthy believer to serve God. But... The believer must overcome the obstacle of his or her wealth. Okay? Now, now I think it's safe to say that it's much easier to trust God when we have little than when we have much. Right? Right? Because with much, we can, we can be prone to, to, to greed, to arrogance, to self-reliance, to self-sufficiency. The tendency, we have the tendency, is, is the tendency is to forget our need for God. There's the, the temptation to serve money and possessions rather than God. The focus is on riches, if we're not careful, which causes us to lose sight of our walk with God. Now, I want, to, I want you to write this down. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. And listen very carefully what it says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Someone say amen to that. For we brought nothing into the world. You know that? And we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap 
and in two, many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. This is what he says. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith. Did you get that? Have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We all know the story of the rich young ruler, right? In Luke chapter 10, excuse me, Mark, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 25, he, he desired to serve God, right, until he found out that he would have to share his wealth. So, so wealthy believers need to be very careful that they don't allow anything to come between them and God. And in the text, in the text, that's what James is driving at, Okay? And he doesn't condemn their wealth. He's not doing that. He's not condemning their wealth, but he urges them to maintain a proper perspective regarding their wealth. If you got it, say got it. So the obstacle, turn your outline over, is the opportunity. Write that down. Say the opportunity. Look at verse 10b with me. Should take pride in his low position. So I want you to follow me here, okay? So the believer of humble means was commanded to glory in his what? High position, right? Right? And here the believer of wealthy means is being commanded to glory in his low position, humiliation. Okay? In other words, not to glory in his wealth and the status and power that come from financial success. Rather, James is saying to glory in his humiliation as a believer. In other words, recognizing that his riches doesn't put him on a higher spiritual level than the poor believer. Okay? That his riches can't extend his life or gain acceptance of God. Rather, to rejoice in his future, listen now, humiliation at death because he knows he has eternal future ahead. Now, I want to say this. When a wealthy person comes to Jesus, they have to learn to become humble. And if they don't, God has a way of humbling them. And he does it because he loves them. And he's teaching them not to trust in their riches, but to trust in him. Because no matter how much you earn, friends, how much power you acquire, how popular you are, it gains you no influence in the kingdom of God. But when you acknowledge the bankruptcy of your soul, when you acknowledge your absolute need for Jesus, for grace, for mercy, and for forgiveness, then you really, really know what it means to be rich in Christ. Write this down, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Paul writes this, he commands those who are rich, who are rich in this present age, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So the rich trust in their riches, the proud trust in their works, the educated trust in their knowledge, the wicked trust in their unbelief. And many today are placing their faith and trust in things that won't last or stand before God. Now notice, James gives his perspective on possessions because he knows that we have 
Let's be honest, we have a natural tendency to trust in material things. And what he does, he offers a reminder regarding the end of life and regardless of of our achievements in this life, each of us will face the end of life one day. So he wants us to consider, fill in the blank, he wants us, James wants us to consider, in light of that, to consider, here we go, the brevity of life. Write that down. Say the brevity of life. Look at verses 10c through verse 11a with me. Because he will pass away like a wild flower. Verse 11a, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. So James here speaks of a common occurrence that we're all familiar with, the rising of the sun. We say that every day, right? The rising of the sun. And he knew that all had experienced the sun rising in the morning and the heat bearing down before midday. And early in the morning, friends, okay, the flower is healthy and the flower is vibrant, but then quickly it begins to wither and die. Well, James 4.14 says this, Why do you... Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life, he says. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So we know, right? We know life is brief, right? I'm officiating a funeral on Saturday of a man in his early 50s. Life is brief. Therefore, we need to maintain a proper focus while living here on earth. And I want to tell you, if you're a believer, okay, we only have one opportunity, one opportunity to live our lives for God in this earth. Amen? So he says, consider the brevity of life, but also consider the vanity of life. Write that down. Say the vanity of life. Look at verse 11b with me. It blossom, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. So now I've never been to Israel, okay, but obviously there are deserts there. And in the summer, it rains, and, and it sprouts out blades of grass there in the desert. And the next day, it's scorched by the blazing sun. And not to mention the strong uh, southeast winds. So, so one day, the flowers are blooming, but after the, the strong wind, uh, they're, they're wilted. And James is simply saying to not trust in riches because it changes. It's not stable. It's not consistent, okay? There'll come a day when wealth will lose its attraction. It's a withering thing. That's what he's saying. I mean, it's like the stock market, right? It fluctuates. We see it all the time, right? Okay? What happened in 1929? The big crash. The big crash, right? Riches are unstable, okay? And plus, you can't take it with you. When you die, not if, but when you die, okay, you won't make any deposits, and you won't cash any checks. You won't. How many of you heard that saying, money talks? Yeah? Well, it's true. It talks to me all the time. It says goodbye. It says goodbye. Yeah, it does. It says goodbye, right? I'll prove it to you. Proverbs 23, 5. This is what it says. Cast but a glance at riches. And they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Isn't that true? Job 121, this is what it, what it says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave me, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 1 Timothy 6, 7, we brought nothing into the world, and we, we can take nothing out of it. 
So what's, what's the point here? Here's the point. In light of what we read so far in the text, we shouldn't become too comfortable and too attached with the things of this world. Right? And wealthy Christians, what they should do, they should boast in that they aren't going to be here very long to enjoy their wealth. So they should use their wealth to invest it and give it as, a, as faithful stewards who will have to give an account to God. And they should take pride and glory and rejoice in their riches in Christ that cannot wither or fade away. So what's the lesson? Here's the lesson. Earthly wealth is temporal. Eternal wealth goes on forever. Now let's be honest, okay? Let's be honest. Many things we place value on and emphasis on is temporal, right? And if we're honest, we spend most of our time and most of our energy on things that won't last, that have no eternal lasting value. And and honestly, we, we could build our dream home but eventually it's going to need repairing. Yeah? Huh? And we can spend all of our time and money on striving to stay young and stay beautiful, but eventually age takes its toll. Right? I mean, I mean, look at look at look at the picture 20 years ago and look at you now. I'm telling you, I'm 57 years old, man. I tell I'm aging, man. You know? Right? No matter what you do, work out or put stuff on your face or whatever it might be, it doesn't, doesn't help, okay? And James knew that a lot of emphasis was being placed on vanity. If you're safe, say amen. We need to ensure, if we're believers, if we said amen, we need to ensure that our lives are lived for God in light of his holiness. Seeking, this now, in light of his holiness, seeking to please him above everything else. Above everything else. The brevity, the vanity, here we go, the certainty of life. The certainty of life. Look at verse 11, see with me. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his what? Business. So James makes it clear what's inevitable for everyone on this earth. That regardless of what we, they, all of us acquire in this life, just as the grass withers and just as the flowers fade and as the flowers fall away, so too everyone must come to the end of life. And that being said, the rich man's riches will not keep him from the clutches of death. Nor, nor will the beggar's poverty as well. The fact is this, okay, we're all going to die unless Jesus comes back. And the way this world looks, he's coming back soon. Huh? Now, if you're not saved, because we know that church is for Christians, but there's non-saved people that come here as well, right? We know that. But if you're not saved, okay, let me ask you this. What, what are you trusting in when, when, when this life is over? What are, you, what are you trusting in? Huh? Because we all have an appointment with death. That day's going to come. And one, one, one day this life is, will be over for you, okay, and you will have to face God. So let me ask you, for those, for the, if there's someone here who's not saved, okay, do you know for certain you will go to heaven when you die? Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? Okay. 
Well, how about the saved? If you're saved, let me ask you this. What is your main priority in this life? If you're a believer, what is your main priority in this life? Where do you devote your time and your energy? And are you using what God has blessed you with in a way that pleases him? Let me ask you this, Christians. Do you desire to serve God and please him above everything else? Is he the number one priority in your life? Great questions to ponder on, yeah? Think about that. So we can learn anything from the text. It's that trials are the great equalizer. Say great, great equalizer. Say that. Okay, bringing all of God's children, whether rich or whether poor, to dependence on him. Got it? Number three is reward. Rags, riches, reward. Say reward. Look at verse 12a with me. Blessed, say that, say that. I want to stop there. That word blessed, okay, in the Greek, the word blessed is makarios. Makarios. And it's the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Now, now this word, okay, makarios, blessed, means more than happiness. And what it does, friends, it carries the idea of inner joy, of inner satisfaction. It's something that outside, that outside circumstances cannot affect. It's something that we, we carry within. It's a quality that you and I as believers receive from God and that we cannot acquire it apart from God. And the idea is that the blessed believer is a privileged recipient of God's favor who will enjoy a certain favorable situation if he or she meets God's condition for receiving that blessedness. So he says blessed, right? Is the man, let's read on, a woman who, what, perseveres under trial. In other words, friends, the believer who doesn't lose confidence in God, the, the believer who, who hangs in there, the believer who stays under pressure, the believer who, who remains under the load, the believer who doesn't give up, the believer who sticks with it, the believer who sticks with the process. Blessed is the man, woman, who, in other words, doesn't give up, doesn't bail out in the midst of the trial. And how many times have we been tempted to just step out of the trial and bail out rather than going through it? Blessed, happy, fulfilled, satisfied is a man or woman who perseveres under your trial. Under that trial. Notice, fill in the blank, the glory. Write that down, the glory. Say that. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. The glory, look at verse 12b. Because when he or she has stood the test, I want to stop there. Stood the test means been approved. That's what it means. It means been approved. It refers to validating the genuineness or worth of something. It was used of validating that of a gold coin, that a gold coin was actually gold and not fake. And what it does is it implies passing the test, which demonstrates that the genuineness of the believer will be evident through the experience of test. And you see, these are believers who never surrender sure trust in God. And what they do, they persevere through anything that might come their way. Because why? Because they know their God. Do you know your God? Knowing God should help us to persevere 
under trial. Yeah? The test. So what's the lesson? Here's the lesson. Trials determine what kind of faith we have. Trials determine what kind of faith that you and I have. Let me tell you this. God is in the business of approving your faith. You know that? God has allowed trials, didn't cause them. He's allowed trials in your life to prove your faith, to prove that you're genuine, to prove that you belong to his kingdom, to prove that you have the right to say, I'm a child of God. He is in the business of making you, right, mature, right? Trials determine what kind of faith we have. So, so who's the blessed Who's the happy believer? The one who stands through trials of life and is proven genuine. Let's read on. He will receive the crown of what? Come on. The crown of life, right? Okay. And you know, we, we, we may not appreciate or fully understand the trials in our lives, but we need to keep in mind that this earthly life is not all that we have to look forward to. Okay. This is just preparation for eternity. The crown of life will far outweigh any temporary pleasure the world offers. Say say the crown of life. Say that. So here James, what he's doing, he's using an athletic term to describe a spiritual reward. And we'll, we'll talk about that down the line here. But I want to point out the Bible, now that we're talking about crowns, the Bible speaks about five crowns. Say Say five crowns. Okay, the first one, here we go, fill in the blank, here we go, is the incorruptible crown. The incorruptible crown. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 25. It speaks for those who are living a disciplined life. Those who are faithful, faithfully running the race. Okay? That's the incorruptible crown. You also have the crown of rejoicing. Write that down, the crown of rejoicing. That's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. It speaks for those who are faithfully witnessing to others about the saving grace of Jesus Christ and leading them to Christ. This is also known as the soul winner's crown. The soul winner's crown. So you have the incorruptible crown the crown of rejoicing, then you also have the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. And this is for those who love, I love this, who love the appearing of Christ, who anxiously, say anxiously, wait and look forward to the day when he will return for his saints. It also speaks of those who have lived a good and righteous life for God. The incorruptible crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness. Then you have the crown of glory. Say that. The crown of glory. That's found in 1 Peter 5, 4. And this, is, this crown is for pastors who faithfully shepherd the flock. But I believe this also includes Sunday school teachers and youth teachers. Missionaries and all those who teach the word of God, the crown of glory. And finally, the crown of life, right? And that's found in our text, verse 12, and also in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. 
This is known as the Stephanos, okay? The Stephanos was the, 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 the victor's crown, a wreath of laurel leaves placed on the head of one who succeeded at the Olympic Games. This crown, this crown, the crown of life, is for those believers who endure trials, for those believers who endure tribulations and severe sufferings, even unto death. And I want to tell you, friends, God honors each of our trials. He honors each of our tribulations, and he will reward us accordingly. Okay? So there's your five crowns. If you got it, say got it. Now I want to say something, okay? I want to say this regarding, okay, the crown of life. James is not saying that we are saved by enduring trials. He's not saying that, okay? We can't earn our salvation. If you believe that, say amen. So he's not saying that we are saved by enduring trials. Rather, we are rewarded for enduring trials. Got it? Rewarded for enduring trials. Now, now in heaven, I want to say this, in heaven, there are different levels of rewards. Okay? Got it? Well, let me put it this way. In heaven, everyone's cup is going to be full. But not everyone is going to have the same size cups. I will say it again. Okay? In, in heaven, everyone's cup is full, but not everyone is going to have the same size cups. So in heaven, there are different levels of rewards. Say the glory. Write this down, the guarantee. The guarantee. I want you to look at verse 12, see with me. That God has promised. Aren't you loving this? That God has promised to those who love him. A promise is something that God will emphatically fulfill what he says he will do. Therefore, okay, we can count on his word. Right? We can hold him to his promises, okay? Our hope is guaranteed, guaranteed by the promise of God himself. Now, we've all been let down and disappointed by broken promises, right? We all have, right? It's part of life, right? Well, we don't need to worry about God because he won't break his promises. What's the lesson? Here we go. God is a promise keeper. God is a promise keeper. Got it? Since a promise is something that God will keep, we can count on his word. And I love that about God and his word, right? We can hold uh, him to his promises. He, and you know what? He has too much integrity to break his promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20, write it down. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Let's look at the text once more. That God has promised to those, say promised, to those who love him. To those who what? Love him. So say love. And it's promised to those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. We love him because he first loved us. And I don't know about you, but when I consider all that I have in Jesus, when I consider that, friends, it makes me want to love him more and more and more and more and more. He is worthy of all my love. He is worthy of all my devotion. And you see, love is the motivation. That's it. Love is the motivation. In other words, we're hanging in there. We're, we're not giving up. We're sticking with the process because we love him. 
He's the passion of our heart. He's, he's the longing of our life and the purpose of our existence. Amen? If there's no love for God or only a pretend love for him, then the trials of life will prove this out. The attraction, listen now, of the world will have a greater pull than the passion, than the passion for God. Bottom line is this, whether rich or poor, whether through good times or bad, true love for God endures. In other words, friends, this is it. If I truly love God, if I truly love him, okay, I'm not going to bail out. Okay, I'm not going to blame him. I'm going to go through the trial. And because I love him, and because I know he loves me, I know he has my best interests at heart. But it's love. Because I love him. I'm going to go through it, Lord. I don't understand it. I can't comprehend it. It's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. But Lord, nonetheless, I'm going to go through it because I love you. Because true love for God endures. Amen? Endures. So, so we need to accept our trials. Okay, let's, let's wrap this all up. We need to accept our trials and thank God for them. Why? Because trials happen in our lives for a reason. So, so the next time, okay, or maybe right now, you're in a trial. If you're in a trial right now, thank him. Thank him. Are you crazy, Pastor? No, no, thank him. And I'll tell you why, friends, okay? Because trials happen in our lives to produce real Christian joy. Real Christian joy. Right? Also, to mature us. To mature us, right? You're not going through it just for the fun of it, man. Okay? You're going through it for a reason, for a purpose. He wants to grow you. He wants to mature you. He wants you to see things in light of what he, how he sees things. Okay? Trials happen in our lives to drive us to prayer. How about that? Doesn't that bring us to our knees? And then to bring equality among us, whether rich or poor. And finally, to bring us reward in heaven. So in the midst of your trial, keep eternity in sight. Because the natural response for us to do in our trials is what? To focus on our trials. To focus on the pain. To focus on the hurt. To focus on the difficulty. Instead, what James is saying is don't focus on that. You're not denying it. That's real. We know that's real. You're not denying that, right, Okay. But you're acknowledging that Christ is above all. And keep your eyes on him and the riches you have in heaven. Because one day when this life is over, you will be rewarded for going through the trial. So in the midst of that, don't focus on the trial. Focus, keep your eyes on eternity. Amen? Praise him. Let's all stand. Father in heaven, we thank you.